Welcome to the Notion Club podcast. I'm Justin Hall, and today's episode will be something of a departure from our typical routine. Every week, we aim to celebrate what is true, good, and beautiful by highlighting, through our discussions and arguments, the virtues of whatever it is we're talking about. I find this to be a much more interesting and gratifying, even, approach to the world than merely debunking what is imperfect or corrupt. If all you do is debunk and deconstruct, you're left with nothing but ashes. The composer Mahler once famously said that tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. But oftentimes, in the interest of uplifting what is good, the good must first be defended from onslaughts of, well, uh, for lack of a better term, the dark arts, by which I mean the arts that aim only to deconstruct and tear down. So today I'm doing exactly that, defending one of the greatest artistic achievements of human history, the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, which has recently come under attack in an article that has been making its rounds about the internet, published by Vox, called How Beethoven's Fifth Symphony Put the Classism in Classical Music. This article is accompanied by four podcast episodes about Beethoven's Fifth by a podcast called Switched on Pop. Both the article and the podcasts are a mere attempt to deconstruct Beethoven's symphony, and Beethoven himself, and not just Beethoven but the entire classical tradition, into a belittled and caricatured form, all in the name of, let's say, the despotic etiquette of political correctness. So this episode is the first episode, and probably not the last, in which I deconstruct deconstruction. Or, to put it another way, this is our first class of Defense Against the Dark Arts. This is episode 21 of The Notion Club. It would be misleading to say that this article and its accompanying podcast episodes by Nate Sloan and Charlie Harding, called How Beethoven's Fifth Symphony Put the Classism in Classical Music, uh, is in any way original. As far as music scholarship goes, it's a bit of a yawn. Actually, the moment I saw the title, I predicted everything the article was going to say for two reasons. First, it simply presents the same claims that have been made by musicologists for several decades now, which is precisely what I heard repeated again and again throughout my six years at Music Conservatory. The other reason is that this kind of approach attempts to deconstruct music into a very particular ideology, which is the leftist doctrine of identity politics. Now, if you're going to deflate a piece of music into the terms of identity politics, 
there's a very limited way to do that, and what that looks like is reducing everything into a simple narrative of oppressor versus oppressed, or in the terms of this article, the included versus the excluded. We've talked about this ideology in past episodes, describing where it came from historically and how it seeped into the universities and in turn our culture pandemically. But here's an example of how this ideology is applied to music. Let's begin with the broad claims of the article and its podcast, which, by the way, I I recommend you check out simply to see how this deconstructive method is applied. The main thrust of the argument is that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has, over the centuries, created a culture of elitism and exclusion. This culture of elitism and exclusion manifests, the authors write, in a set of stringent rules of etiquette to be observed in the concert hall, rules which include not coughing or cheering during a performance, dressing appropriately, and arriving to the concert on time. These tyrannical rules have the effect of excluding certain people. Now, the authors never really get around to explaining how precisely Beethoven's Fifth Symphony accomplished this, except to claim, rather bizarrely, that these rules developed because, quote, In Mozart's day, each movement in a symphony was self-contained, like a collection of short stories. Beethoven's Fifth acted more like a novel, asking audiences to follow a single story that unfolded over an entire four-movement symphony. In other words, instead of getting a break between each of the movements, where the audience can clap or, I guess, do whatever they have the urge to do, Beethoven's Fifth symphony must be heard together all at once, which means that the audience is required to sit and listen for the entirety of about half an hour. Now, this is a bizarre argument for two reasons. First, the authors never demonstrate how Beethoven's fifth specifically led to all these rules. They simply claim that it did so, quote, over time, unquote, and were never given any explanation of the cause and effect of this. Second, and more importantly, it's bizarre that they've picked Beethoven's fifth to make this claim, because the fifth is hardly the first symphony that was written as a cohesive whole. Actually, the more obvious example when talking about Beethoven would be his third symphony, the Eroica, which famously caused a drama in the music world for its massive scale and its jarring opening chords. This earlier symphony also is composed with the intention of being heard as a cohesive one experience. And, in fact, it's nearly twice the length of the fifth. So, if one were to make a claim that a Beethoven symphony demanded endurance of its audience— and somehow in turn this caused the development of elitist and exclusionary rules, the obvious suspect is the third symphony, not the fifth. I can only guess that the authors of this article chose the fifth, not for any evidenced reason in itself, but simply because of its fame, especially its opening four notes. Which nearly everybody knows. In this case, they were able to make an argument based on the fame of Beethoven that the fame of his fifth 
led to a culture of elitism and exclusion, rather than dealing with the music on a detailed level of analysis, showing how the innate qualities of the music are somehow elitist and exclusionary by nature, which would of course be an impossible argument to make, though without doubt a very entertaining one. Nevertheless, they picked the fifth, not the third, and went the easier route of making claims without evidence. So with the broad strokes of their argument in mind, uh, that Beethoven's legacy created a culture of elitism and exclusion, let's delve into the specifics of their claims, starting with the opening paragraph of the article. Quote, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony starts with an anguished opening theme and ends with a glorious major key melody. Now, this is just a detail, but those opening four notes are not actually a theme or melody, though they do lead to a theme. Rather, they are a motive, a tiny musical cell out of which the rest of the symphony will grow like an organic living thing. That intervallic idea of a minor third and the rhythmic idea of short, 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 long is repeated literally hundreds of times in different ways throughout the entire piece. Now, this is not such a tiny detail if you are going to have any kind of discussion about Beethoven's Fifth, especially if you are going to call into question the legitimacy of his genius. This is one aspect of Beethoven's genius that is indispensable in any conversation about him. This ability to create entire universes of music out of the tiniest musical atoms, and to do so in a way which is utterly unified and cohesive as the universe itself. But the authors of this article and its podcast constantly demonstrate either a lack of understanding, or worse, a lack of care about these musical details, which at the very least negates the credibility of their criticism. But more to the point, they say that this opening theme is anguished, and maybe it is anguished, but later on in their podcast discussion, they talk about how these four notes were used by Allied forces during World War II as a symbol of victory and triumph. So which is it? Is it anguished and struggling? Or is it triumphant and victorious? It can't be both. And this is exactly the kind of contradiction and inconsistency that's so characteristic of deconstructive criticism like this, which attempts to play into every narrative indiscriminately. Now, of course, they try to explain this away by later claiming that we get to choose our own meaning for ourselves when we listen to the fifth. I get to decide what it means for me. If it means anguish to me, that's legit. If it means triumph to you, well, that's cool too. But this is simply another contradiction in their argument. I mean, if it is the case that we each get to choose the meaning for ourselves, then that's simply an invitation to stop listening to their podcast and stop reading their article. If I get to choose my own meaning, and that's how the music becomes meaningful, then why would I listen to you tell me what the music means? And more importantly, who are you to say who the music includes or excludes. Isn't that for listeners to decide whether it includes them or not, if it is for them to decide its meaning? This reminds me of something the late Sir Roger Scruton wrote. Anyone who says that there are no truths, or that all truth is merely relative, is asking you not to believe him. So don't. 
Of course, they would probably say that the problem isn't so much the music of the Fifth Symphony, but rather the culture of elitism and exclusion which was caused by it. So despite the fact that, as I've shown, they never actually demonstrate how Beethoven's Fifth created this culture, let's take a look at these stringent rules, this etiquette of exclusion, that they talk about. In their podcast discussion, they say, quote, you might be required to read the Symphony Concert Etiquette Guide before you attend, unquote. Now, what exactly are they talking about? I've never in my life read a concert etiquette guide, to say nothing of being required to read one. So I ran a search on the internet and attempted to find what in the world they're referencing, and I came up with one result, which is almost certainly their source. It's an article on the website of some regional orchestra, which discusses general guidelines for what to expect from an orchestra concert. It's not necessarily accurate, in fact, it's rather exaggerated. But in the Vox podcast episode, they don't reference this as a single source. They act like this is ubiquitous to every symphony orchestra and every concert. This is intentional dishonesty. They know very well that this is neither ubiquitous nor required reading. I mean, what does it even mean that you're required to read this before attending a concert? As in, you can't buy a ticket until you've read it? This is absurd. They've completely fabricated this, which amounts to nothing but slander. It's fairly pathetic, actually. But it does reveal something of their method, and the methods of deconstruction. Take one instance, one single example or anecdote, and construe it as though it were a universal or systemic problem. This is a vulgar caricature of inductive reasoning. So even though it's quite petty, let's take a look at these specific rules. The first supposed rule is that you're not allowed to clap between movements. Now, this is actually somewhat true, depending on the piece of music in question. But it's important to distinguish between a convention that is intuitively followed and a draconian rule that is inflicted. The point of not clapping between movements is to preserve the suspense of irresolution. In a tonal drama, like a symphony, the story isn't over at the end of a movement, and in fact, the way dramatic suspense is maintained in music is often through silence, the delaying of resolution, um, both harmonically and thematically. To clap after each movement would quickly dissipate this tension and deflate the drama, and to this end, it seems as if most audience members would actually prefer to not applaud for the sake of their own enjoyment. After all, there are instances where clapping does occur between movements of a symphony. For example, if you've ever had the opportunity to attend a performance of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6, The Pathétique, the audience almost always applauds after the third movement, before the symphony is even over. In fact, if you go to a live performance of the Pathétique and the audience doesn't clap after the third movement, I will refund your ticket. <laughs> and this isn't because it's a convention or rule to clap after the third movement. It's because the drama has concluded in a climactic way. It is simply the audience's natural reaction to applaud. And this is the other thing. It is misguided and mistaken to think that silence 
is not a legitimate form of interaction. When an audience is silent between movements or silent during a movement, it isn't because they're being excluded from the music. It is because they are participating in the music in a very deep and immersive way. They have become lost in the music. They're following the journey. They're immersed in the dream. To make noise or to clap or to cheer would break the spell. It would wake the dream. The point of being silent during a concert is not some puritanical bigotry which excludes people. On the contrary, to be noisy or to clap during the music would exclude others from participating in the fullest sense. This is music that you listen to. Listen, not dance. And that's a distinction that the authors of the Vox article are not capable of making. In fact, they even suggest that a disco version of Beethoven's Fifth should be played in the concert hall. Of course, their podcast is about pop music, and so they're probably more at home at the kind of concerts where, you know, the crowd dances and screams throughout. Because, well, given the kind of music being performed, it doesn't really make much difference whether you're listening intently or screaming your head off. Not that there's anything wrong with that, I should say. It is a legitimate cultural experience, just a very different musical one. Now, another rule, which is related, is not coughing. Now, I hardly need to say anything about this. It's simply out of common decency to not cough obnoxiously during a concert out of respect for your fellow concert goers. It, the fact that they take something like this, which is fairly universal, I mean, try having a coughing fit the next time you're at a movie theater and see if you don't annoy somebody. The fact that they take common decency and twist it into something to make it seem tyrannical and exclusionary, that says quite a lot about their character. Then you have the etiquette of dress code, which is equally tyrannical and exclusionary, so we're told. Make of this what you will. As far as I can tell, there is no universal dress code for the symphony hall. Uh, I've gone to concerts by the Cleveland Orchestra in jeans before, and at other times in suits, most often somewhere in between. Uh, audience members typically dress along the entire spectrum, from casual to formal, and I've never once encountered the fashion police. That said, most people, even I would say most young people, who attend an orchestra concert actually enjoy the experience of dressing up and presenting themselves in a respectful way. How is this elitism? And in any case, if you're going to level this criticism against the supposed dress code of classical music, it would simply be hypocrisy if you didn't first criticize worse examples of this in popular culture. What about the Oscars or the Emmys or Golden Globes? Events like this, which are too often orgies of self-glorification, which go far beyond elitism into fashions of truly repugnant gluttony and narcissism. Of course, my favorite rule that they criticize is punctuality. In their podcast discussion, they say, quote, I love going to see the orchestra, and yet it throws my whole life out of order because it's the only place that I ever go that actually starts perfectly on time. And if you're like one minute late, they throw you out. Unquote. 
So first of all, really? They throw you out? I would love to see this happen. I can't count how many times I arrived to an orchestra concert late and was very respectfully led to an empty seat between movements. But more importantly, what exactly would you prefer? You'd rather the orchestra not start on time? I mean, what if the musicians were themselves late arriving? In fact, what if none of the sections in the orchestra came in at the same time during the performance? I mean, while we're at it, let's just subvert the whole oppressive concept of rhythm itself. Let's just allow every musician to play whenever he or she pleases and see what comes of it. It would be like a dystopian nightmare in which the world is run by violists. Now, I want to pause for a moment just to take a step back and assess the nature of the criticism as we've dealt with it so far. At this point, I think it's important to ask, where is Beethoven's fifth in all of this? In fact, where is Beethoven? The authors of the Vox article level these accusations against the tradition of classical music, and they place the blame on the shoulders of Beethoven. They do this without evidence, without substantiation, without explanation, without even any coherence. It's less than illogical to leap from Beethoven's fifth to these rules of etiquette which somehow create a culture of elitism and exclusion. And by the way, in their podcast discussion, they not only call these rules, they call them aggressions. These are aggressions inflicted upon certain people groups for the very purpose of excluding them. Now, what's at the heart of their criticism is a kind of resentment. It's resentment toward what seems to be one of the last harbors of reverence in our culture. It is resentment of reverence itself. This is where their mockery starts up. In their podcast, they buffoon the idea of reverence. They mock the idea of the sacred. They say, quote, we go to these quiet halls of sanctified music. It's holy. It's almost like we're going to worship at the altars of these classical gods. And I can really not think of any other setting in which that kind of musical communion and reverence is expected. The fact that we're going to buildings made by famous architects, everything about it is almost religious, like we're bowing to these great intellects of art and music." Unquote. Now, let's remember that this is criticism, and the criticism only exists in their exaggerated and buffoonish language, sanctified music, worshipping at the altars, classical gods, and so on. Aside from these caricatures, what exactly is there to criticize here? What is so corrupt about going to a concert held within great architectures? Presumably, this includes concert halls with great acoustics, spaces that are designed for the most immersive musical experience. Would it be somehow more inclusive if we went to concerts in a parking garage? There is a pure irony at the root of this, because the implication of their criticism is that we are being elitist and exclusionary, and therefore corrupt, by venerating great composers and going to buildings made by famous architects. The implication being that they are somehow morally superior for criticizing these things. And that is a religious and moralistic posture if ever there was one. And that's the very point of their criticism, to elevate themselves to a place of moral superiority. 
The reason for this resentment of the reverent, of the serious, of the sacred, is that what it really means to be reverent is that you actually have to have some humility. What is being resented and criticized here is ultimately humility, a forgetting of the self. It takes humility to not cough or make obnoxious noise for the sake of your neighbors. It takes a kind of humility to present yourself in a respectful way. It takes humility to arrive on time. It takes humility to be silent during a performance and forget yourself. And that is precisely what they refuse to do, because what they are after is not a forgetting of the self in order to contemplate and experience higher and more beautiful realities. They demand that the music must be a representation of them, or rather, a representation of those people who are excluded. In other words, it must be a reflection of their egos and identities. Here is where we come to the crux of the problem. And even though there are literally dozens of other claims that they made, which I'd love to take apart and demonstrate their inner contradictions, if not their hypocrisy, I think we should conclude by dealing with this central claim, which is a claim of human nature. They say, quote, Not everyone feels that Beethoven is the best representation of our species' collective achievement, unquote. I'll read that again. Not everyone feels that Beethoven is the best representation of our species' collective achievement. Now, on the surface, this claim seems fairly innocuous. After all, there are probably very few people who would choose Beethoven as the representation of our collective achievement, uh, however you define collective or achievement. But of course, what the authors are objecting to is not actually Beethoven, but the very idea that anyone, especially a man, especially a white man, could ever be a suitable representation of humanity. This is where the claim is, in reality, fundamental to the extreme. This is inherent in their objection to what they call elitism. What's implicit here is an objection to the divine image as it manifests in the human individual. This is at the very center of all their grievance claims, in which they cast out individualism completely. To see each individual person as the divine image made manifest, to see ourselves as made in the image of God, this means that each individual person is himself or herself the representation of humanity overall. And this can be equally a good thing or a bad thing. This is why when we witness atrocities committed by criminals, by murderers, for example, we are repulsed because we see our very humanity, our very nature, represented in that individual in a manner that is profaned, that is made evil. The sacred image in that instance is desecrated, and in turn, we ourselves feel desecrated. On the other hand, this is also the reality that enables us to look at someone like Beethoven and celebrate him, not because he is the representation of humanity, but because he is a representation of humanity. When we look to someone like Beethoven and all that he achieved, we are seeing some part of ourselves, some part of our very nature and our very potential represented in him. 
Through his achievements, human nature is uplifted, and we, in turn, are uplifted. But what if you look at humans through the limited, narrow lens of identity politics? What if, when you look at a person, you don't see a soul, you don't see the image of God, you don't see all of humanity represented, instead, you see skin color, you see race, you see a particular sex or gender. Look at Beethoven. What do you see? A male with white skin. Okay, then suppose that you enter the world of classical music in which Beethoven is venerated and celebrated, uh, is considered a representation of some collective achievement. What do you see? You see maleness and whiteness as venerated and celebrated as the representation of collective achievement. And of course, this seems unacceptable, and it is unacceptable. It's a total perversion. But the problem is the vision of the people who look at the world in this way. It's not that they miss the point of Beethoven. It's that they miss the point of humanity. And so these same people, like the authors of this article, then turn to other people, let's say other collectives who are different in certain narrow characteristics. For example, they look at people with black skin, and they tell them this, You are excluded from the concert hall because the music of Beethoven or Bach or Mahler or Mozart does not represent you. You are not represented here. They don't ask them. They tell them. And these are the same people who claim that they're the ones being compassionate for the excluded. But instead of saying the music of Beethoven is a transcendent representation of human life in all of its struggle and glory. And because you are human too, this is your story. You are in it, and it is in you. Instead of this, they say, Beethoven had white skin, you have black skin, and so you're not represented by him. In order for you to have a part in the concert hall, we have to program composers who had a skin color like yours. Think about these two approaches to music and to humanity, and then you tell me who it is who's actually doing the excluding. To construe any human in such a narrow, vulgar, dehumanized way is appalling beyond comprehension. It is tragic beyond expression. But that is the aim and effect of the Vox article. It's a deconstruction which yields nothing but ash, and that is precisely why it needs to be, in turn, criticized. I should say that I didn't choose to respond to this article by Vox because it's a notable piece of scholarship. It isn't in any way. I chose it in part because of its popularity on the internet, But more importantly, I wanted to demonstrate how this kind of deconstruction, this kind of dark art, seeks only to undermine things that are true, good, and beautiful in themselves. But this deconstruction never offers anything as an alternative or an improvement. It is only typical that the authors of this article do not give any solutions for the problems they present. They don't offer us anything better than Beethoven, or anything that could be more ennobling than listening 
to an orchestra. They have nothing but criticism and mockery, which ultimately dehumanizes humanity itself. This is something we ought to be constantly on guard against, in the interest of preserving all that is good and true. This is not about keeping in place structures of power that are tyrannical and oppressive. This is about being careful enough to not tear down into rubble and ash the things around us that are most beautiful. This is about, at the end of the day, having enough humility to be grateful. This concludes our first session of Defense Against the Dark Arts. The Notion Club will return next week. Thanks for listening.